0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much he loves us starts right now.
1: Like I'm wondering if you were a superhero, what superpower you would choose if you could choose only one. Now, as you can imagine, I've thought about this, but I'm, I'm totally conflicted like, I don't know whether I would want super strength or whether I'd want flight or whether I'd want invisibility. I know for sure I'd want a cool costume, like, like I'd want a really cool logo on my chest. Um, I'd want a cool helmet or mask, maybe both. And then there's the secret identity to think about, you know, something like Peter Parker, ah, not so much, Bruce Wayne, maybe, Tony Stark, that's what I'm talking about. And, and don't forget about like the base or the headquarters. Imagine your very own bat cave or fortress of solitude. How awesome would that be? Anybody here into superheroes when, when you were a kid? Yeah, maybe, maybe still a little bit, maybe more than a little bit. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to read superhero comic books and sometimes I would watch superhero cartoons on TV. And if I'm keeping it real, sometimes I would pretend that I was a superhero now kids today have got it made um you know six months in the road this year nine months last year our daughter adessa she spends lots of road hours with her ipad and this is why i say kids today have it made i mean between their cell phones and their tablets and their gaming systems they're never more than one click away from being able to pretend to be almost anyone or to do almost anything right When I was a kid, if I wanted to play superhero, mom did not hand me an iPad. She handed me a tattered old bath towel and a safety pin. Man, I'd wrap that towel around my shoulders and mom would help me get it pinned up tight and hours of fun would follow. Now, kids today would get like five minutes out of that. First, four would be spent complaining about how lame it was. But we could make it work all day long, right? Isn't it true, though, that even as adults, there's something inside of us that wants to be a hero? Isn't there something deep down inside of you that wants to like do something heroic, that wants to live heroically? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So if you haven't already, let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. There we're going to meet a woman who was totally a hero. She did something so heroic. She learned to live her life heroically. And from her, we're going to learn three things that we have to do if we too are going to live heroically. And all of this in the end kind of fits into the christmas story we'll get to that later first as you're finding your place let me just pray and ask lord that you would speak to us through your word lord even as we're in the holiday season you know we've we've had thanksgiving now it's rushing toward christmas and we just so want to not lose you in the midst of the busyness and so even tonight lord those here taking this time to set aside, to worship, to pray, to study. Lord, meet us here and speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we have to do if we're gonna live heroically is we have to let go of the past. We're gonna start really slow, but then pick up a lot of speed by the end. So so don't panic when we hunker down here for a while, but we're gonna start by talking about the need to let go of the past. Verse one, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now, this is a generation after the Exodus. If, uh, if you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie, right? The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Maybe you went the animated route and saw the Prince of Egypt. Either way, this story takes place right after that story. So Moses has, I'm sorry, Joshua has succeeded Moses. The people have crossed the river and they're ready now to conquer the land that God has promised them when they come to this place called Acacia Grove. At least that's what it's called in the New King James Version. Now, if you find that that place name sounds familiar, it totally should sound familiar. It was there in Acacia Grove just a generation before that the men of Israel were seduced By the women of Moab. Their fathers seduced by the women of Moab. And so, long story short, as a result of their unfaithfulness to God and their unfaithfulness to their families, 24,000 people died. I mean, that means there were people that went forward without a husband, others who went forward without a father or a son. And, And you know that every single year on an anniversary, they'd be reminded. You know that every single year on a birthday, they would be reminded you know for sure as they gathered in this place where all these things happened not so long before, they would be reminded about, well, about how the choices of one generation affect the next. It makes me think about how I've been affected by the choices that my parents made. And it challenges me to think about how the choices that I'm making affect my daughters, one grown, one still at home, and now granddaughter. That's right, we, we have a two-year-old granddaughter Um, in Keller, in Fort Worth, um, Texas. And so, so it makes me think even about how my choices might affect her. You know, maybe your family of origin isn't so different from mine. Has there been something in your family, something that is harmful, something that is hurtful, that has gone on and on, like maybe generation after generation? In my family, that thing has been alcoholism. My dad uh, was an alcoholic. Now, if he were here tonight, if he was, you know, on the front row, he would probably say that he is a recovering alcoholic, just because that's the language lots of people use today. But I'm so happy to tell you that my dad has been sober now for years. Not before it cost him his marriage to my mother. And not before it very nearly cost him his second marriage. But to see the way my dad has put his life back together is an amazing thing. Like, like, his life is so much better since he got sober. I'm really proud of him. But it wasn't just my dad, it was his dad. My grandfather was an alcoholic. You know, it's funny, when you talk about a loved one who's passed, don't you don't you try to picture them? Don't you try to, like, see them in your mind the way you remember them? And And I would do that except I'm struggling. Like, I can barely remember his face. It's funny, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I saw him in my entire life. And not for a lack of opportunity, my grandfather on my dad's side, he lived well into my adulthood, certainly into my 30s. But, you know, again, he was like alienated from the rest of the family. You see, he and my grandmother were married and divorced twice to each other. They were married, they got divorced, they tried it again. They failed again. And no doubt the failure of both marriages was due in large part to my grandfather's alcohol abuse. Now, it's not hard, is it, to imagine what that meant for my dad? For my dad, that meant growing up largely without a father figure in the home. And for my dad, it meant growing up largely in poverty. Fact is, my dad and his brothers, my uncles, lived with their mother, my grandmother, who lived with her own mother, my great grandmother. In public housing in San Bernardino, California, the projects known as Waterman Gardens. And you know that had to affect the way my dad raised me and my sister Cheryl. It's been some years now since my grandfather passed. I don't remember exactly when it was. I was pastoring Calvary Austin at the time. And probably two months later, I was in California for our annual pastor's conference. I did as I often did. I stuck around an extra day or two to visit my dad in Orange County when the conference had ended. And so there I am in my dad's living room like two months after he's buried his own dad. And, and he was telling me what it was like for him to travel to Stockton where my grandfather had spent his final years. What it was like for him to enter the house and to go through his personal belongings. And, and just then my dad asked me if I would wait right there while he went in the other room. So I waited, and it wasn't long before he came back carrying a box. I want to talk about this box for a minute because I've got one like it, and I'm guessing some of you do too. Do you have a box? I mean, it could be a drawer. It could be just any special place where you put, like, keepsakes, mementos, things you've sort of gathered over a lifetime, you know. Maybe when you move from one place to another, even one state to another, you've taken them with you or saved them or preserved them. So, so I've got a little box like that, a little brown wooden box. that says San Diego on the front. I got it as a kid on a trip to San Diego. Inside are my class ring, my high school class ring, some coins I've gathered and travels to other countries, some cool rocks, some knickknacks have found their way in there over the years. But, but I have this box. Now, I have to admit I haven't seen this box for three years. It's in a storage unit in Austin, Texas. But I know it's there. Can anybody relate? Do you have a box like that, special place? Okay, so, so Grandpa had a box. And my dad, he took the lid off the box and he started moving things around inside and then, and then taking them out. And he took out a document, and it was a certificate of divorce. I don't remember now whether it was the first divorce or the second. He reached back in, and he took out a picture of my uncle Bill when Bill was a baby. In this picture, he's on my grandfather's knee. Bill was later killed in action in Vietnam. And then my grandfather, or my dad, reached back in my grandfather's box, and, and he took out my kindergarten picture and my first grade picture. And my second grade picture. You know, I have to admit, I was feeling a little choked up at that point and, 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 and conflicted. I mean, it's so crazy to me that though I can barely remember his face, he thought that my face had a place in his box. You know, so again, feeling two different ways about it. There's a part of me that's like, I made grandpa's box. That part of me feels really, really good. But there's another part of me that feels really, really bad. And that's the part of me that realizes that whereas my box, and probably your box too, is a box filled with memories, his was a box filled with regrets. His was a box filled with reminders of all the things that he'd had but lost, all the things that he might have enjoyed right up until the end of his life, but instead didn't get to enjoy at all. And so whether we're talking about my grandfather's story or whether we're talking about the backstory to Joshua chapter two, it's a reminder to all of us that there has to come a time in our lives when we say enough is enough. That it doesn't matter, you know, what has gone on in our family or for how long or whether we ourselves have struggled in the same way as I have. We get to say it stops here. It stops now. It stops with this generation. It stops with me. Can you feel the mood in Acacia Grove? And it wasn't even just that. There's another thing that's like a throwback. Did you guys see where it talked about the sending of the spies? You know, again, that takes us back a generation because Moses too sent the spies, right? Moses sent 12 spies. And if you know the story, you know that 10 of those spies came back with a negative report. 10 of them were like, there's no way we can do this. I don't care who God says we are or what God says we can do. There is no way. We shouldn't even try this. Two guys came back with a positive report. One of them was Joshua, by the way. And they're like, oh, we so got this. Like we are exactly who God says we are. We can do exactly what God says we can do. Why are we wasting time having this argument? We should be taking the land right now. Come on, let's go. Sadly, sadly, As is often the case, even in a community of faith like a local church, the negative voices carried the day. And as a result, an entire generation was doomed to die in the wilderness. Their sentence? 40 years with time served. For the best part of 40 years, they would wander through the desert waiting for everyone of a certain age to die. That's a lot of funerals. In fact, we could do the math. You know, as we, as we think about that whole scenario, about that whole situation, as we, as we think about you know, how many people were likely wandering through the wilderness and, and all of that, the truth is, if they used every single hour of daylight to bury people, they were probably, scholars estimate, seven, eight times per hour burying someone for 40 years. Think of it. And you know that every single time another body slid beneath the sand, they would be reminded about what happens when we listen to the wrong voices. You know, has that been your experience? We talk to people all the time who say that, that you know, like for as long as they can remember, maybe, maybe for a lifetime, they've been beat down by the negative things that other people have said to them and about them. You know, for you, it could have been like a parent or a sibling. It could have been um, a teacher or a coach. It could have been a youth pastor or a Sunday school teacher. As an adult, it might even be your spouse. But for as long as you can remember, you've just been beat down by this message about you that's at odds with what God says about you. If that's been your experience, I am so sorry. That could be really hard to overcome. Isn't it true though that for all of us even if we don't relate to that or at least not as a lifelong thing Isn't it true that for all of us the biggest problem isn't with the story they tell us about us But with the story we tell ourselves You know how it goes that little voice in your head that says you're not enough You know i'm not handsome enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not You know, athletic enough, I'm not intelligent enough, I'm not trained enough, educated enough, I'm not cool enough, I'm not sophisticated enough, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not good enough. Guys, this is one more of those things where there has to come a time in our lives when we say enough is enough. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, we going forward, we're not going to listen to anyone. Even if it's us, we're not going to listen to anyone who says anything other than what God says about who we are and about what we can do. Can you feel the mood in Acacia Grove? And so with that backstory, we rejoin the narrative. Notice the spies, they were sent, it says, to gather intelligence. And it tells us especially of a place called Jericho. Now, if you go home and Google Jericho you'll discover that the modern city claims to be the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Now, you know whether that's true or not, that's an interesting thing to talk about, right? An interesting thing to think about. Uh, What we're most interested in is what Jericho was like in Bible times. What was it like when our story takes place? So maybe the first thing you need to know is that Jericho is heavily fortified with not one, but two walls. Now, what I wanna know is, you know, who paid for the wall? Did Moab pay for the wall? Did Jericho pay for the wall? I don't know. I don't know how that worked in ancient times. I know, I know people talk about it in modern times, but in ancient times, I'm not so sure. The crazy thing is that, that in the ancient world, a wall really was a matter of security. In the ancient world, in ancient Jericho, a wall was the difference between a good night's sleep and getting killed in your sleep. Your wife raped, your kids taken as slaves. That's the world they lived in. So they had to build walls around their cities. But what would happen if after you'd built a wall, you ran out of room? Well, then you build another wall. So picture a second larger concentric circle. And the space between the walls? Suburbs. It's like old Jericho and new Jericho. Now, just file that in the back of your mind, because we're going to come back to it in just a little bit. But these spies, no sooner did their feet hit the ground in Jericho than they were found in the red light district. I mean, like for real, if you were new to the Bible, you would never see that coming, right? If you were a first-time reader of the Bible, you would not be like, I know where they're going to be when I turn the page. There's just no way you would call that. But there they were. Now, it's crazy because it seems like in a split second, we've gone from talking about the world's oldest city to talking about the world's oldest profession. It's like, how did we get here? But I feel like I need to clarify. I don't think the spies were at Rahab's place to get under the covers. I think they were there undercover, the success of their mission depended upon not drawing attention to themselves. The way I picture it, that day when they traveled to Jericho, they likely joined or were joined by others traveling to Jericho. They didn't tunnel into the city. They walked right through open city gates. They, they followed the flow of traffic to those parts of the city where tourists would go, and they found themselves where they found themselves. But maybe we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the value that they might have placed on Rahab as an intelligence asset. I mean, think of it. There's no telling who she knew or what. It was reasonable for them to think that that she might have access to information that no one else they were gonna get to talk to would have access to. It makes perfect sense to me that they would want to talk to her. And if there was anything inappropriate about the spy's visit to her place, the Bible doesn't tell us so. But don't you love that the Bible tells us the truth about Rahab? I love that for so many reasons. I'm gonna pick just one. Talk about it briefly and move on. I love it because today, <clears throat> excuse me, we hear so much out there, but also in here, like not just in the world, but even in the church. We hear so much about the need for authenticity, transparency, vulnerability, and like so many other things we talk about at church, we are so much better at talking about it than we are at doing it, so much better at talking about it than we are at practicing it. Like um, if you've been in church long, like I have, if like me, you've had Multiple church homes over a lifetime. You're, you're going to know where I'm going with this even, even before I get there. Like, like you, you were at some point, some place where someone got brave and found their voice. They told their story like Miranda has told her story here before. Um, you know, they, they opened up maybe and shared about some ways that they were struggling at that time like got really really raw you know maybe maybe they admitted that they had doubts about things that everybody else in the group took for granted and then you watched in horror as the people around them shamed them shushed them and shunned them and you very quickly learned that church is not always a safe place to keep it real no matter what we say but shouldn't it be And again, if you were new to all of this, wouldn't you assume that it would be? Like, I'm just thinking if I was new to faith, if I was new to the Bible, if I was new to church and I came upon this Bible story, I would be thinking to myself when I discovered that the hero of the story is a prostitute, I would be thinking, wow, I have finally found myself someplace where I can be real, where I can tell the truth about myself, where I can be transparent and let my guard down. I'm so glad for you guys that you're in a church that values as a distinctive part of its culture, grace. What if we all found ourselves someplace in the future, down the road, we were all someplace where that wasn't the case? Would we have to wait for somebody at the top to figure it out and fix it? No way. We could fix it. Grassroots. You know how? If we all agreed to do two things. You ready? Number one, we all agree to be brave and tell our stories. Number 2 We all agree that when it's the next person's turn, we absolutely will not shame, shush, or shun them. If we just did that, we could transform the culture wherever we found ourselves. Now, in fairness to Rahab, she may have done what she did as a matter of survival. Am I saying that what Rahab did was okay? No. What Rahab did was totally not okay. Just like, by the way, so many things that I've done are totally not okay. But we need to take a moment to put ourselves in Rahab's shoes man she was in a really tough place that maybe is hard for us to understand because we're we're like so far removed from it in the ancient world if you were a single woman you know you weren't married or maybe you were widowed and if you didn't have family helping to provide for your financial physical material needs you were in a battle to survive it's not like Rahab could just put on her career hat and reinvent herself The ancient world didn't work like that. She couldn't jump online, join LinkedIn, and start networking. Again, that wasn't available to her. It wasn't even an option. So what I'm saying is that many times in the ancient world, and maybe, just maybe, more often than we think in the modern world, there have been women so desperate to find a way to survive another day, another week, another month, that they've thought about doing things or even done things that they never would have dreamed of doing before then. So, you know... However upsetting it is for us to learn this about Rahab, it's not half as upsetting as it was for her to live it. And I guess the other thing I would say about this is, aren't we learning that life is so much better when we take even five minutes to put ourselves in someone else's shoes before we decide that they don't matter, that they don't count, that they don't have any value, or even that we know everything there is to know about what they're doing or why they're doing it, because we don't. Could Rahab live heroically? Well, not unless she let go of the past. I mean, think of all the guilt from her past. Think of all the guys, all the hookups. Do you have a past? Are there skeletons in your closet? I mean, the truth is that we've all done things that we're ashamed of, embarrassed by, things that we feel guilty about. But one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in life is when we allow guilt from our past to rob us of the future that God has for us. You know why we do that? We do that because we don't get forgiveness. I don't mean we haven't received it. Like, if you're a follower of Christ, you've certainly received forgiveness. What I mean is we don't get it up here. Like, we struggle to wrap our minds around the idea that, well, as we sometimes say, God forgives and forgets. If the Bible doesn't say that explicitly, it certainly says it implicitly. Uh, Let's just take one example. You guys know that Bible verse that talks about God dumping our sin into the sea? I love that verse. And I want you to get a visual on it right now. I want you to imagine that as I'm speaking, God is rounding up all of my sin. Like right now, right this minute, he is rounding up every sin that Alan Rigg has ever committed. You guys should totally make yourselves comfortable because this could take a while. We're waiting. We're waiting. It's awkward, I know. It's my sin. All right, he's got it. Now, he's dumping it into the Mediterranean Sea. I want you to picture the storm surge like beaches all around the Mediterranean are disappearing. Coastal cities are filling with water as my sin is sinking into the deep, dark depths of the Mediterranean in a field of bubbles. And only finally does it hit the seafloor, sending silt in every direction that slowly settles until finally no one can see my sin. No one can find my sin. God himself isn't going to dredge my sin up because he promises not to. Now with that image in your mind, do you think it's possible there could ever come a time when I am, when you are allowing guilt from our past to rob us of the future that God has for us, that God might look at us and say, I'm over it, why aren't you? Have you allowed a handful of guilty memories to control your life? To define you? To tell you who you are? You know, those things you feel guilty about, they're a part of your story, but they're not your whole story. God is still writing your story. And guys, this is one more of those things where we get to say enough is enough. That going forward, I'm not gonna live from that guilty place anymore. I'm gonna live from this forgiven place instead. Now, not only was there guilt from her past, I think there was hurt from her past. We're gonna learn in a moment that she did, in fact, have family in Jericho. So It's conjecture on my part, but if she had family in Jericho and they weren't helping her financially, they weren't, as best we can tell, doing anything to rescue her from this life that she was caught in, is it not at least possible that they'd had a falling out, that she was hurt, that they were hurt, that there was more than enough hurt to go around? There usually is. Have you been hurt? Is there in your life like an undercurrent of anger, of bitterness, of resentment, you know, the truth is, we've all been hurt. And you know why hurt from our past robs us of the future that God has for us? Because we don't give forgiveness. So guilt robs us because we don't get forgiveness. Hurt robs us because we don't give it. Have you guys ever heard that saying, hurt people hurt people? Yeah. Man, that is so true. I mean, that's what you and I do. We do that, right? I mean, this is our posture when we've been hurt. We're like, mm, no, I'm not going to forgive you. You owe me. You owe it to me to be miserable. You owe it to me to be miserable for a long time, like for the rest of your life. I mean, it gets so bad, like we're laying in bed at night, wide awake. We're not counting sheep. We're telling ourselves stories like this one. I hope I never see them again. No, I hope I do, because I've got a thing or two to say to them. Like, what if I ran into them at the grocery store or the hardware store? I'd act like I didn't even know them. That'd be good. Well, no, because i got these zingers I've been working on, so I'd have, to, I'd have to approach them. So I'd go up to them, and I'd say this, and they'd be speechless. It'd be awesome. Well, no, because i got more zingers, so they'd have to respond. So I'd go up, and I'd say this, and they'd say that, and they'd be really stupid, so then I'd say this. Meanwhile, here they are at home. I mean, they don't even know we're thinking that stuff. Or worse, they know, and they totally do not care. This is why we say that forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. When I forgive the person who's hurt me, it effectively ends any control that they have over my life. Now, if you've been hurt deeply or if you've been hurt recently, like, I know what you're thinking. I can, I can hear it. Like, it's like a thought bubble over your head. Who is this guy and who invited him? You know, because it can be almost like a slap in the face. Like, who is this guy to tell me to forgive? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know them. He doesn't know what they did. He doesn't know how it hurt. Maybe it would help if I differentiated between two things. There's a world of difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm talking about forgiveness. Listen, reconciliation takes two. For that reason alone, it isn't always possible. Now, you'll hear that in church. You want me to throw in something that you won't hear as often in church? This is like when you get the director's cut. This is like the deleted scenes. This is like the bonus materials. You ready? Not only is reconciliation not always possible, but it isn't always, not in every single last situation desirable. You know, if you've heard my wife Miranda tell her story here, I mean, she has told her story here. If you've heard that, if you remember that, the victim of domestic violence, you know that for my wife and for our daughter, reconciliation would not have been safe. Take a story like my dad's for somebody in recovery. There are some people that you just don't ever need to reconnect with. So it takes two to reconcile. But listen, it takes one to forgive. You can, I can, all by ourselves, we can decide to let go of past hurt. Yeah, but Alan, if I forgive them, then I'm saying that what they did wasn't wrong. I'm saying that what they did didn't hurt. You'd be saying no such thing. You know what you'd be saying? You'd be saying what you did was wrong. What you did did hurt. But holding this relational IOU over your head is tearing me up, so I'm tearing it up. I refuse to lose even one more day of my life to this feeling of angst that I have lived with 24-7, 365 for longer than I care to admit, so I'm letting go of the past. Have you allowed a handful of hurtful memories to control your life, to define you, to tell you who you are? Those things that hurt you, yes, they're a part of your story. They are not your whole story. God is still writing your story. So guys, listen, this is one more of those things where we get to say enough is enough. Going forward, I'm not going to live from this hurt place anymore. I'm going to live from this forgiving place instead. If we're going to live heroically, we've got to let go of the past. And now just watch, true to my word, we're going to pick up some speed here. Second thing we've got to do is we've got to face our fears. Let's begin reading in verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. She had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. So the spies had been followed, found out, somehow or other. Could Rahab live heroically? Not unless she faced her fears. Fear is so universal. Like, I know that everybody experiences fear to different degrees at different times. Have you guys ever heard of that website, phobialist.com? You'll have to check it out, like, when you get home. They've cataloged over 500 phobias. It's like you're scared of stuff you hadn't even thought of yet. It's crazy. Anybody here afraid of heights? Yeah? So you're not even lifting your hand all the way up over your head because that would be, like, too far off the ground. Um, anybody having a natural fear of needles? Like, you know, I mean, nobody li- likes to get a shot or a blood draw, but for you, that's a really bad day. Yeah. So you couldn't raise your hand too high because you're sore from that flu shot that you got. Um, anybody here, like, having a natural fear of spiders? Like, for you, that's the real home invasion. Is a spider anywhere in the house. Yeah. And who's just afraid to raise their hand in public? Anybody? Okay, you pass. That would be my daughter. You pass. All right, so those of you guys that raised your hand, I'm pretty sure there's some coffee somewhere. You guys should go relax. rest of us have some more work to do. Fear is so crazy powerful. Like, like seriously, have you ever been so scared that you did something you wouldn't normally do? I've totally done that. Or have you ever been so scared that you didn't do something you normally would do? I've totally done that too. I mean, how powerful is fear to influence us that way? Maybe that's why the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Did you know that? There's a lot of do's and don'ts in the Bible. But the one that occurs more than any other is do not be afraid. We're gonna double back to that in a minute, but first I wanna remind you about this, this you know physical timeline that I've been creating. I've been, I've been talking about Um, guilt and hurt which are over here in the past right on this physical timeline but when we think about fear fear is usually over here in the future like we're afraid this is going to happen we're afraid that's not going to happen listen don't make the mistake of thinking that these things are not connected they're totally connected you know what i'm learning i'm learning that in life if i don't make peace with the past i will almost always fear the future and rahab she had every reason to be afraid She was about to risk her life to hide the spies and to lie for them. Now, quickly, that raises an ethical question, doesn't it? Like, what's up with that? Like, is it okay that she lied? Is it not okay that she lied? You guys want to know my take real fast? I could throw it out there. Because otherwise, you'll be driving home like, yeah, that message is okay, but that guy's a chicken. Like, he wouldn't even take a position on that. So so I'll throw it out there real quick and just, just lay it out there. I would compare what Rahab did. To what people living in Europe during World War II did. People who took Jews into their homes and hid them. Maybe they even built, you know, places like a fake wall for them to hide behind. And then then when Nazi soldiers came pounding on the door demanding to know whether there were Jews present, they lied. They said no. They chose life-saving over truth-telling when it wasn't possible to do both. To put it another way... Two moral absolutes came into unavoidable conflict and they chose the greater good, I believe, without guilt. It's what Norman Geisler calls graded absolutism. Google it, you can read about it. Um, We can totally disagree about this and be friends. But at least I gave you my thoughts, right? I've given you something to argue about on the drive home from church tonight. So, mission accomplished, you're welcome. Um, You know, the crazy thing is, is that Rahab, she could have played it safe, but think of the regret. I mean, she would have had so much regret. Have you ever played it safe only to regret it later? Of course you have. Remember that time you struck out looking? And all these years later, you're still like, oh, if only I'd taken a cut at that pitch. Or that time that you knew the answer, but you couldn't get your mouth open. You couldn't get your voice to come out of your throat. That time you wanted to volunteer, but you couldn't get your hand up over your head. That time that you couldn't decide about the house or the car and somebody else got it. Or that other time, you know the one, you were so close. You were like crazy close. to Telling someone how you really felt about them. You chickened out. Maybe you never had another opportunity. Rahab she she could have played it safe she could have refused to hide the spies she could have refused to lie for them instead she risked the life she had for the life she wanted to live heroically you have to risk your life as it is and that's crazy scary that's why we're talking about facing our fears so again I can I can hear your thoughts from here like well that sounds really risky do I look like a risk taker to you Is that you? Is that what you're thinking? Is that what you would say to me right now? Like like maybe you're one of those people who would describe yourself as having a low risk tolerance. Or maybe you would say that you have no risk tolerance at all. Only I'm not buying it. I'm totally not buying it. I was in a bookstore not that long ago. You remember those? They had shelves, these things with pages. They were really cool. I liked them a lot. And I took this book off the shelf and the title was The 100 Most Dangerous Things in Everyday Life and What to Do About Them. Do not read that book. Oh, man, that book wrecked my mind. Like, I had no idea that every year in the United States, more people are killed by teddy bears than by grizzly bears. Who knew? Like, a button can pop off. You can have a choking incident. Um, Did you know that every year in the United States, 40,000 people are injured by their television set? Now, I have to admit, more than once, we've been watching AFV, America's Funniest Videos, seen some kids roughhousing, they're rolling across the room, they run into some furniture that starts to wobble, a TV tumbles off, you can have a crushing injury. Against my better judgment, I'm going to throw one more example out there. You ready for this? Did you know that every year in the United States, 60,000 people are injured using the toilet? Right? So don't tell me you're not a risk taker unless you're prepared to hold it, forever. I mean, the question isn't whether to risk. We take risks all the time. The question is, what are you going to risk? So hear me out. Are you going to risk the life that you have for the life that you want, the life that God wants for you? Or are you going to put at risk the life that you want, the one that God wants for you to hold on to the life that you have? The idea is to face your fears, like what would you do tomorrow if you weren't afraid? We're about to read verses, like verse 9, where Rahab uses fear words, verse 11, where she uses fear phrases, but by the time you get to the New Testament, it says nothing about her fear and everything about her faith. Now, this is weird, right? Because we think heroes feel no fear, but Rahab was scared out of her mind. So what gives? What gives? You know, maybe it's not that heroes feel no fear. Maybe like everyone else with a pulse, heroes feel fear, but they refuse to be controlled by it. Remember, the most common command in the Bible was what? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, which teaches us, among other things, that there is a way of being where though we feel fear like everyone else, we refuse to be controlled by it. Imagine for you a life not continually controlled by fear. Imagine thoughts not continually fueled by fear. Imagine future plans not continually formed in fear. So if we're going to live heroically, we let go of the past, we face our fears, and finally we believe. Now we're really going to pick up our pace. You guys ready for this? Verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also... Will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Now, we've got more verses to read, but super fast. Just look, let your eyes fall on verse 11. Look at what she said. She spoke of one God, singular. She spoke of a personal God when she used the pronoun your, your God. She spoke of an all powerful, everywhere present at once God when she described him as being, quote, in heaven above and on earth beneath, end quote. I believe this is the language of faith. I believe that Rahab had come to believe as evidenced by the act of faith that follows. So check it out, verse 14. The men answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, then it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall and she said to them, get to the mountain lest the pursuers meet you hide there three days until the pursuers have returned afterward You may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now, notice, not just once, but twice in verse 15, it says that she lived on the wall, so so you and I we're hanging out together, and we are on the approach to Jericho. From where we stand side by side, we can see the inner wall, but we don't care about that. We're focused on the outer wall where Rahab lived. Now go home, check three sources, you get three different descriptions. Here's one: what we might be looking at is like a 15 foot um, earthen retaining wall, and then on top of that, like a 25 foot brick wall. So you see her window. Come on, let's let's approach the wall. We're going to walk right up to the wall and we're going to look right up at her window and we're looking up, what, like 40 feet, right? Which raises a question. What in the world was Rahab doing with a 40 or 50 foot rope laying in the house? I mean, did everybody in Jericho keep a 50 footer in the coffee table? Did only people living in the wall keep a 50 foot rope, you know, on a hook by the window? I don't know, but I'm guessing these were not the first men to make a hasty escape from Rahab's place. Just throwing that little observation out there now. She wasn't letting them go anywhere until she had a deal, which raises a better question than the rope question, as entertaining as that is, at least to me. And that is, why didn't she go with them? She could have led them to a cave in the hill country of Judah. Then when it was safe, she could have followed them to Acacia Grove. Um, You know, what if they didn't come back? What if they came back but didn't keep their word, didn't keep the deal? What if before they could come back and keep the deal, she'd been found out? They would have killed her for sure in jericho if they'd known what she was up to right there's only one reason her family only that reason isn't anywhere near as obvious as it seems not when you go back and consider that it's likely that she and her family weren't getting along maybe not even speaking so we think about rahab could rahab live heroically well not unless she believed not unless she believed in god We stopped and placed an emphasis on that point in the story where we see her using the language of faith, coming to faith. Um, Not unless she believed in herself, by which I mean the woman that God was making her. And not unless she believed in the future, her future, by which I mean the future that God was forming for her, but not for her alone. It's an amazing thing because, well, Rahab had so many reasons not to care about anyone's future but her own. She'd been overlooked by all the eligible bachelors of Jericho. She'd been used by immoral men from far and wide. As best we can tell, she'd been abandoned by her own family. Who would blame her for wanting to get out and never look back? The idea is to believe God for a big future that makes us and others bigger. As Christians, man, we love, we love to talk about the future. We've got, you know, books about how to, how to you know kind of like put vision together, how to craft it, how to word it, how to share it, and all of that um sometimes we talk about like having a god given dream, listen, if your god given dream is only big enough for you, that's not God's dream for you. God's dream for you will always be so big that there's room in it for you and for others. And Rahab is the most amazing case in point. You know, by the time we get to chapter 6, we discovered that um, when the battle went down, she and her family were spared. And then just two verses later, we find out that when the book of Joshua was written, that Rahab was alive and well and living as a part of their community. How awesome is that? Not half as awesome as this. Because you get to the end of the Old Testament. And then you turn through those blank pages, you know, the ones between the Testaments. And then you turn to the first book of the New Testament, and to the first chapter of the first book, and to the first verses of the first chapter. And there you find a tree, but not just any tree, a family tree, Jesus Family tree. As part of the Christmas story, you might even think of it as a Christmas tree. And I've got to describe this tree for you because it's so amazing. It's so impressive. It has these huge branches that go off in every direction. And on each branch is carved the name of a woman or a man who lived heroically. And on one branch, for everyone to see, for you to see, right where you're sitting, R A. H A B, Rahab. You know what this means, right? It means that not only had she become a part of their community, but she'd fallen in love, she'd gotten married. And she had kids who had kids who had kids until finally one of her descendants was Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, who many rightly see in the color of cord that she was told to tie in her window, that scarlet cord suggesting the blood that Jesus would one day shed on the cross to make all of this amazing stuff that we're talking about possible. Oh my goodness. I mean, clearly Rahab had... This amazing ability to believe God for a bigger, better future. But do you think that even Rahab could have imagined this? From prostitute to mother. How long? How long had Rahab worn a big old label that said prostitute? And God comes along and he takes hold of the corner of that label. And listen, rip! And in its place he puts a new label that says, "Mother you know if you were here the the weekend that Miranda shared her story of surviving domestic violence and and losing everything losing her her marriage and her ministry and all of her material things um you know you can easily understand as I tell you that that God comes along and you know here's here's Miranda's divorce label. And God comes along and he takes hold of the corner of that and listen, rip! And in its place, he puts a new label that says, wife, my wife. Many of you don't know as much about my story. In a nutshell, I had a very similar experience. You know, nine years ago now that that I was pastoring Calvary Austin and my wife left me and our then 17-year-old daughter and Like Miranda, I lost everything. Man, I lost my marriage. I lost my ministry. I too lost all of my material things. I remember the day I returned my car. I remember the day I came home to find the foreclosure notice on the door of my house. What I'm getting at is that we both know what it's like to live a labeled life. To see the way people look at you. The way they talk about you. The way even in public places, they sneak pictures with their cell phone and send them to who knows who, saying who knows what. We both know what it's like to have people in our worlds who won't ever let us forget. But again, God comes along and takes hold of the corner of my divorce label. Rip! And in its place puts a new label that says, husband. What label do you need to see and hear God tearing from you tonight? Failure, rip, loser, rip, sinner, rip. And what label do you need to see God putting in its place? I'm gonna say a prayer. Miranda's gonna come up. We're gonna lead you guys to one last worship song. Before I say that prayer, can I make a suggestion as to what you might do when you get home tonight? Isn't that thoughtful of me to plan the rest of your evening for you? See how I roll? I wanna suggest that when you get home tonight, you find a tattered old bat towel and a safety pin. You wrap that towel around your shoulders, you pin it up close, and you begin to live heroically as you let go of past guilt and hurt, as you face your fears, feeling them fully but refusing to be controlled by them, and as you believe God for a bigger, better future for you, of course for you, but not just for you, for the people around you as well. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, so grateful for the way that you meet us in these times, in these places, in these gatherings, and Lord, just desiring so much that we now could respond. You know, we've been singing, we've been praying, we've been studying, and now we just, we want to respond in those same ways to the things that you've spoken into our hearts and into our lives tonight. And so, Lord, you know, as we sing this song in a moment, may it be an opportunity for us to To worship you and to give thanks to you and to recognize how gracious you've been to us but even before we sing that song and as our heads are bowed i just want to speak a word to you and over you who are here tonight you know i i can identify with rahab and i'll bet some of you can too you know maybe you're in a place tonight where you can identify with her you know she must have felt like an outsider And she must have felt like God was surely against her. And she must have thought that because of what she'd done and what had been done to her, that there was no way God could, you know, still want to make something beautiful out of her life. Have you ever thought those things? Do you feel those things now? This story teaches us that God makes insiders of outsiders. It teaches us that God is for us and not against us. You know, it teaches us that no matter what we've done or no matter what's been done to us, that God loves us still and that God can make something beautiful out of our lives. Can you believe him for that tonight? Can you believe that in this holiday season? Can you believe that as you step into a new year? Father, that's my prayer for people here tonight. Lord, I pray that our hearts could feel hopeful, especially if there's anyone here that maybe hasn't felt hopeful in a long time. I pray that their hearts will be flooded with hope tonight as we sing together in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys want to stand with us?
0: Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227.